If you can open your Bibles in Esther 3, and we're going to hold her, we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, but before we get there, let me just uh, remind us what, where, where we have been and uh, where we're going. So two weeks ago, we began to study the book of Esther. And we saw that although God's name is not mentioned in this book, God's constantly, constant providence and care are in Esther's story as well as ours. Last week, Pastor John took us through chapter 2, helping us to see that Esther and Mordecai were living a type of double life. On the one hand, secretly identifying themselves as Jews, but at the same time identifying and following Persian customs. As in the case of Esther, giving herself in marriage to a Persian, we saw that many times we find ourselves in situations where even where every choice is rare, a rare mixture of right and wrong. Only God knows our story from its beginning. That even when we make wrong choices, God, being all-powerful and merciful, can use our mistakes and weaknesses to accomplish his purpose in and through us. Today, as we continue the study of Esther in chapter 3, we continue to see God's providence. We will see many injustices and that, all, that uh, although everything points to an imminent ruin and slaughter, God is in control of everything. And by his covenant and love, we can trust in him. So let's open our Bibles then in Esther 3, 1 to 5. I mean, 1 to 15. That's 15 verses. So uh, follow me. Uh, the words are also on the screen if, if you want to look at those. We're reading from the new, um, not the standard, <laughs> English standard version. <laughs> I'm using a lot of versions, so sorry. <laughs> but um, let's uh, read. After these things, King Assuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedata, and advanced him and set his, his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pray homage, pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pray or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Assuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Assuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silvers into the hands of those who have charge of the king's businesses, that they may put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signed ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedata, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with the king's Signed ring. Signet. How do you say it? Signet? Thank you. Sorry. Signet ring. Letters were sent by uh, couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the documents was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you would be with us, touch our hearts, our minds, touch my lips, Father, that I can express your word and uh, that we can act according to your will, Father. Be with us. May your Holy Spirit uh, be here present and uh, that we would know that, Father. Uh, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, children or adults, has anyone ever congratulated or recognized or even rewarded someone else for the work you actually did? ¿Están bien atrás, muchachos? Okay. ¿Escuchan? Okay. Gracias. Or even worse, have you, have you ever been punished for something you didn't commit? Sometimes without knowing, I would congratulate my son Nathan for picking up the, the toys. And I'm proud of him and I tell him, good job, buddy. And he turns around and he's like, like I got you, daddy, no problem. And later on, I found, find out that Sebastian was the one that picked up the, the toys. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> never mind. But you know, that reminded me of a, a story. Uh, when I was uh, a little boy, I was uh, in second grade in elementary school. 
And, uh, you know, I was with my friends, and suddenly a sixth grader came and pushed me down to the floor, and I scraped my legs and my knees and my, my hands, and, and my friend came to me, and he helped me stand up, and was like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. But suddenly, one of the toughest teachers of the school saw me crying and came and asked what, what, what had happened. So my friend explained to her, and then there's a boy, a sixth grader, just running by. She just grabbed him, shook him, and then beat him. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about 1970s, so <laughs> by then it was okay. It was okay <laughs> to punish that like that, or no suits at least. <laughs> but anyway, she punched him on the head and shook him, and like, don't do it again, please. Don't do, you better behave yourself. And, and then send, send him to the corner. And this poor guy, I mean, he's crying and ooh, just weeping and, and goes to the corner. And then at the same time, I'm like trying to tell the teacher, hey, that wasn't the guy, that wasn't the guy. My friend's like, hey, stop it. He already, already paid for what they did to you. So just be quiet and let it go. <laughs> let it go. Afterwards, I felt just so guilty and sad. And I'm like just, confused. Why did oh, this is an injustice? Well, when we are confronted with cases of injustice and things we cannot control, we become frustrated, anxious, and even depressed. The worst thing is that very soon we forget the promises of the one who has everything in control. We have a very great God who despite the circumstances reminds us of his constant love. He is faithful to his covenant with his people and has shown it throughout history in his word. Today, as we continue with chapter 3 of Esther, we will see that what our, what our response is to this faithfulness of God to his covenant with us. As we've seen before, Esther and Mardokai are not and the exemplary characters we would all like to follow. In fact, no one is except our Lord Jesus Christ. But their example will help us on focus not on them, but on our God, whom we can't, can trust. And the main point is, because God is faithful to his covenant, we respond by trusting him. So, because God is faithful to his covenant... We, can, we respond by trusting in him. Trusting by not conforming to this world or to this culture. Secondly, trusting in humility. And the third one, trusting his perfect plan. So first, we trust by not conforming to this culture. As Pastor John reminded us last week, the origin of the names Esther and Mordecai are not Jewish at all, derived rather from the god Marduk and the goddess Ishtar, who were Babylonian gods. Both are falling into the trap of passing as incognitos among the Babylonians, pretending to be like them. We saw in chapter 2, verse 10, that Esther does not reveal her nationality or her, fami her family history because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. 
pushing her to sin against God, being ready to intermarry with someone who didn't belong to God's people. If we remember, like throughout the Old Testament, God is commanding once over and over again that uh, the Israelites shouldn't intermarry with other cultures, remember? But here we see that Mardukai, or even Esther, she could actually, uh, she, she had the chance to stand up and say, I'm sorry, uncle, but I'm not doing this. But she, I mean, it's kind of like between the, the sword and the, and the wall, no? Like it's in two faces, and she obeys, she submits, but she's doing the wrong thing. Uh, and Pastor John asks the question, was Mardukai scheming to influence the kingdom's court or the king's court? Maybe. We see that Mardukai is conforming to Persian culture in order to influence it. Although we see that Mardukai does not want Esther to reveal her identity as a Jew, he actually does so with the king's servant. Uh, we read in verse 3 and 4, it said, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So he is actually identifying with them, maybe just to to be agreeable, or, or we, we don't know exactly uh, the context, but he, he's telling Esther, hey, don't say anything about your past or your background, but he is willing to, to open himself, uh, maybe to, to be accepted or be more accepted or be more friendly with, with those uh, on court. Uh, we don't know his motivation for finally revealing his Jewish heritage other than possibly being pressure to do so. Obviously, no one had known this previously. In a way, he is trying to make Esther and him conform to Persian culture to go unnoticed. It is like when we're watching a foot football game and they ask us, which team are you rooting for, right? And we respond, whoever wins. Whoever wins, I'll vote for them. Yeah, whoever wins, I'm, I'm, I'm with, with that team, my special, very loved team. It's a type of convenience. There's no need to be f a faithful or commit to something or someone. When you find a true fan of a team, it's easy to know, right? <laughs> we all know. Uh, because they are not only wearing the team's jersey, but they are willing to give everything for them. No? They, ah, go team! And they jump and they scream. Or when they're, they're losing, <laughs> come on, please, guys, please, please. And they pray to, well, they do everything in order to win. Um, so now, if this is with a, a team, what about with someone as powerful and mighty as our God? It is clear that Mordecai is not living or acknowledging God fully in his life. And this helps us ask the same question. What team are we rooting for? And here, here we're not talking about a football game. Rather, are we recognizing God in our lives? How much are we recognizing him? Do we recognize him only when everything is going well and there is no pressure? 
or do we recognize God even when things get difficult and uncertain? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the re renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Another version, the New Living Translation says, do not imitate the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into new people by changing your way of thinking. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Today's world offers, offers us comfort, stability, riches, and many other things. Perhaps Mordecai was looking for that by sending Esther to participate in the beauty pageant in spite of disobeying God, as we mentioned before, and hiding her true identity. We can see something similar today. The comfort that this world offer, offers is very attractive that perhaps encourages us to stay in a status quo that only if it is very necessary, we confess that we are Christians. Are we Christians in secret? Or are we sharing Christ? Or sharing what Christ has done in our lives with our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, etc.? What about technology? In the way it can influence our minds and thoughts, are we loving our children by limiting them or limiting the time they spend using it? Or for us, how much time we spend on the phone, video games, television, etc. We may get so caught up in being entertained that we forget to look to the one who can transform us into new people and change our way of thinking. So that we may, we may know his will in all areas of our lives, seeing that it is pleasing and perfect. The only way this can happen is time with him in his presence and his word. And this bring us, brings us to the second point. His perfect will is that we go trusting in humility. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that Mardukai finds out about the eunuch's plan who wanted to kill the king. Remember? He hears and then he tells, uh, well, actually, uh, he, yeah, he tells Esther, and Esther goes to the king, and uh, the plot is, is cut, and those two eunuchs are killed, right? Uh, but, and this is recorded in the royal records, but at the beginning of chapter 3, it's like as if, as if Haman had done that, because he's, he's being honored for saving uh, well, Mordecai is not honored for saving the king, but Haman is honored and promoted to a higher position. That's what we read. Than a higher position than all the other officials. Officials, I'm sorry. Apparently, this event do not affect Mordecai, except when he is required to kneel and pay homage, homage to Haman. According to Herodotus, bowing or kneeling to one's superiors was not an act of worship. Rather, it was a normal part of Persian etiquette at court. So uh, when you kneeled, and many times, I mean, the, the Jews are, they need to kneel down. 
before the authorities, and it's not taken uh, as, as a sin, but except when they're kneeling into a statue or uh, some a, a divine figure that is uh, other than God. Obviously, they, sh they shouldn't build anything like a God, but that's, that's a sin when they are uh, praising or worshiping uh, a statue or, or, or a human being for, for that reason. But honoring people, honoring the kings and leaders, they are uh, required, and there's nothing wrong about that. But, so that's why what Herodotus is saying. Uh, according to the questions that the, uh, that the palace servants ask him every day, why do you disobey the king's order? Mordecai is constantly breaking the law. As John commented uh, last week, it, it may in fact be that Mordecai is being stubborn, not submitting to the leader and to the leader that God has chosen, right? So he's disobeying in an indirect way to what God is requiring from him. Some historical background can help us see the baggage Mordecai is carrying. In verse 1 indicates that the ancestral story of Haman son of Hamedatha, the descendant of Agag. From Exodus 17, 8 through 16, if we remember a great battle in Israel, remember when the Israelites are coming out from Egypt, and then the uh, Am Am Amalekites, yeah, Amalekites come after them. They're weak, they're, they're just coming out, and they attack them. And then, the Lord says, well, okay, Moses, you have to bring your arms up. Remember that part? And as long as he had his, his arms up, then they were winning the battle. But as, as long as he had them up. But if he got tired and started coming down, then the Amalekites would start uh, attacking back and winning the battle. So then finally, Joshua and someone else holds uh, Moses' hands, and finally they, they have the victory because they're holding uh, Moses' hands. So these are the Amalekites. Later on, we read in, um, well, Deuteronomy 25, 17, 19, it narrates how the Amalekites, without fearing God, well, it narrates part of the story, but without Fearing God, they went after the Israelites when coming out of Egypt, Egypt, and the Lord declared, You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So that's an order from, from the Lord is saying, because they attacked you, you should get rid of them. You should. That's an order, direct order to the Israelites. Then uh, we have King Saul who goes to the throne, and they, they're fighting the Amalekites, and instead of destroying everything, every single thing and burning everything, he's like, well, I'm going to keep these little things here and there, and, well, I won't, king, I, I won't kill um, King Agag, who was the king at that time. I won't kill him. I'll just let him live. Samuel comes to him and is like, well, because of your disobedience, you're out. You're out. You're not going to be uh, the king. But also, he goes and grabs his sword and kills Agag, who was the, the Amalekite. But for this disobedient, 
Again, we see that these people, they, they're not annihilated. They, they keep living and, uh, until right now. So now, we now clearly understand why Mardokai does not want to kneel or pay homage, homage to Haman. There is a very deep feeling in Mardokai of uh, anger and hatred that it is difficult for him to obey the king, even God, by submitting to the authorities that are placed above him. Mordecai's great pride and rebellion does not allow him to see that he is about to risk or put to risk not only his own life, but the life of all the Jews. This same rebellion unleashed Haman's unbridled anger. Feeling humiliated by, by Mordecai, he not only wants to get rid of him, now that he learns of his Jewish ori origin, he will try to annihilate all the Jews as well. And we've seen this story repeat and repeat, like all over throughout the Old Testament, and we'll go to the New Testament too, but, but we see that Satan is not happy. And since Genesis 3, 15, remember? What, what is the, when uh, the, the, the fall, right after the fall, God is cursing Satan, and he, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan knows this, and as long as, as he has power, power, you know, control power, but... <laughs> He thinks he does, but, uh, but he's going to try to annihilate the Israelites, the Jews. He's going to be doing this over and over again. Remember, Pharaoh, okay, all male, uh, two and younger, crip. Remember, with Moses, proof also, two and younger. So it's over and over again that we see that they want to annihilate the Israelites. And Satan is like wanting and trying to, to get rid of, of the Israelite people, of the Jews, all the way up to here, right? Uh, so pride can lead us to such blindness that like Mordecai, he did not imagine the great price he would pay for his rebellion, not only with his life, but with that of his people. Mordecai is living a life of slavery, slave to his past, and hatred of Haman and the Amalekites, feeling superior for being Jewish? What areas of our lives makes us feel better than others? Our nationality, our education, our children, you name it, the things that we possess. What is making us feel very proud of ourselves and that we get locked into that we don't realize how much we're affecting uh, how much evil is affecting our life and the lives of others, uh, perhaps our children or those around us, can we forgive those who have offended us, a family member or perhaps a friend? How many times do we hear of families just dividing because there's, there's just enmity between, between brother and sister or siblings or because this or that? Then... It's like, really, seriously, are you brothers? It's hard to, to re recognize that. So uh, 
So we should, let us not uh, let these roots of resentment affect our lives and those we love and bring us, bitter, bring us bitterness and sadness, but rather let us ask God to free us from those chains and live for his glory. God is a, a God of forgiveness and reconciliation. Can we follow his example? So let us be humble and submit to the one to one another, but above all to the authorities that God has placed. Uh, above everything is submit to God, right? And then the authorities that God has placed. First Peter 2.16 says that that is to act as free people who do not use their freedom to disguise evil, but live as servants of God. Give everyone due respect. Love your brothers. Fear God. Respect the king. And we're ready in the uh, as our New Testament reading. Now, I am not saying that we blindly follow the authorities, everything they, they said, but that with discernment, we seek first of all to honor God and obey whom he has assigned. Obviously, to be ready to stand for justice and truth when not followed by our leaders. And this brings us, brings us to the last point, which is trusting his perfect plan. Haman is focused on eliminating the Jewish people completely. And as we mentioned throughout the history of, of the Israelites, he has a complete and perfect plan to carry out. He already saw the dates, casting lots during the first month. And luckily, the month that fell was that of Adar, that would be the 12th month. So he's, he's casting lots and saying, okay, we're going to see when we're going to get rid of the, of the Jewish, right? Of all the Jews. And then he's casting lots. And luckily, <laughs> he has from 1 through 12, right? And the dice, per se, they, they fall on to, into the 12th month. So it's like as far as he, <laughs> I mean, he would like to be like, oh, January. If it was January, January or February the 1st, right? Like he wants to just... Do it fast. But who is in control even of the dice that he's throwing, right? Even of the lots. 12 months. Okay. You're gonna, December. De December 20, 31st. Like, well, no. Uh, we'll do December 15th per se. He's ready to bribe the king with 330,000 kilos of silver. And now he has convinced the king using half-truths, telling him that there are people scattered among the peoples of all the, nation, all the provinces of the kingdom whose laws and customs are different from those of others. So far, that's true. I mean, yeah, there's, there, the Israelites are, or the Jewish are scattered all around uh, other provinces. But then he puts something very personal. He says, they don't obey the laws of the kingdom. It is here that thanks to the rebellion of Mordecai, Haman uses all his cunning to defame all the Jews and thus seeks their certain annihilation. So he's taking advantage of this. All the Jews are, are rebel and are not obeying the, the, the laws of the king. That's wrong. That's, that's a lie. But just because of one man, and this man hurt me, he's not kneeling down when I'm, I'm going by. Then, okay, I'm going to get rid of him. Plus, 
all the, all the uh, Jews with him. So the king agrees to all his requests and even more, not only gives him the royal ring to seal the edict, but authorizes him to do, to do with that people what he sees fit. And lets him keep his money. For some reason, the king does not ask questions about that people. Does not make the slightest investigation to confirm what is about to happen. He does not even check the edict since he has given his ring to seal it. King Ashwerus passes the decree to all the provinces in their different languages in the form of urgent. I mean, he's like, okay, are you done, Haman? Okay, let's send to every province this edict, new edict. Once everyone is informed, now the king and Haman drink to such clever plan while the city of Susa is perplexed and confused. It is obvious that the Jews, the, that the Jews at Susa are completely devastated. They're like, why is this happening to us? And they're crying. They're just in, in fear and, and pain. And according to some commentators, this is a bit out of the blue. Since the Persians and Jews are, uh, have lived in relative harmony, the question begs, why should the king get rid of them now? I mean, this is, this is crazy. Why, why would the king choose to get rid of, them, rid of them now? It would seem that everything is lost for the Jews. It is not fair. So far the scene is set. Esther is snatched from her home, obeying her cousin to fulfill the wishes of an angry and drunken king as we saw at the beginning. Mordecai is not recognized or honored for saving the king's life. Now, because of his pride and rebellion, he has started a time bomb, bomb that will put his life and the life of his people at risk. Haman is promoted and honored more than the other officials of the king. And now, by his pride and hatred against the Jews, he has received all the power to wipe out Mordecai and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, as well as to strip them of all their possessions. King Asuerus has mistakenly decided to give all power to Haman to get rid of an innocent people. The comfort and laziness of this king not to investigate in such important matters that would cause a genocide. That's not fair. Nothing is fair. There is no one just, not even those from who, whom we would expect more, from Mordecai or Esther, right? They're also unjust. They are seeking their own interest. It would be horrible to think that Things would end like this, that the plan would continue and destroy God's chosen people and end the promise made to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. But that's not the case. God's covenant and promise does not depend on the obedience of his people, but rather on God. Mordecai, despite being of God's people, makes very bad decisions by not identifying himself as part of one of the chosen people, and much less by letting his pride prevent him from obeying and submitting to the authority of the king, who is ultimately under God's authority. When all is lost and injustice and evil seem to triumph, we can remember 
who is in control? Who is in control? And as we said throughout history, the annihilation of the Jewish, it's evident. Everyone wants to get rid of them. Even when that baby in Bethlehem was about to be born. Remember Herod? Oh, tell me where is he going to be born so I can come and worship him. Uh-uh. No, no, that's not his plan. He wants to kill him. Okay, we're going to kill all children, all the children, two and younger. We're going to get rid of them because this Messiah or this king is coming. So let's kill all of them. Remember? That's the seed that we were talking about in Genesis 3, 15. That's who Satan wants really to get rid of and annihilate all the Jewish. But no, God is in control. Isaiah 45, 7, 8 says, I from light and create darkness. I form light and create darkness. Bring well-being and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Shower all heavens from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Even Haman has been chosen by God to show his sovereignty and power, which in the end will be used for the glory of God. When we feel that we are suffering injustice, that we are not recognized for our work, when we become discouraged and think that no one sees our, our uh, no one sees or hears our suffering, that is when we should think about the greatest injustice of humanity. First Peter 3:18 says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, being truly dead in the flesh." but made alive in the spirit. One commentator says that Esther and Mordecai are representing in some way the entire Jewish people in exile, seeking their own good and comfort, mixing and adopting new cultures and forms, not excluding the worship of other gods. The result for this sin deserves death, but God is faithful, faithful to his covenant. For such a time like this, out of love for his people, as we know, he sent salvation in an, in an effective and timely manner. All this for his glory. Today, God, out of love for us, when we deserve to die, and as we prayed uh, uh, in, in our confession in, in Titus, <clears throat> Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were just like Mardukai and Esther. We were even like Haman. But we have been transformed. We have been rescued in Jesus Christ. So, God shows his love for us in that while in Romans 5, 8, it says, 
that today God, out of love for us, has sent salvation in a perfect also and absolute way. Romans 5, 8, this, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of anything we have done, but thanks to his mercy and faithfulness. Faithfulness, Christ is the perfect fulfillment of this covenant. I encourage you, if you have not considered this sacrifice of Christ, giving his life for you, to save you from your sins, draw near to him, repent of your sins, and receive forgiveness. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and live a life of freedom in it. If you have done it before, I encourage you in his strength and with the help of his spirit to honor him by obeying him in what he asks you of. Not conforming to this world, but in a personal relationship with him, transform your mind. And in humility, let us know and submit to his will for ourselves, our family, and our church. And as we consider God's great love, May we trust in every area of our lives, even when everything seems dark and death end. He is in control of everything and gives us everything. Romans 8.32 reminds us, Paul reminds us in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love to us. And thank you because your mercy is great. And your grace is huge, Father. We thank you for loving us so much, even though we don't deserve it. Even though while we are still sinners, Father, you send your son to the cross to die for our sins. The just for the unjust. Help us remember that and help us know that you are in control of everything. Even throughout history, Father, you have been uh, giving us victory and giving your people victory. Thank you for adopting us as your children, as your people. And help us understand this more and more in our lives so that we can serve you, love you, and be encouraged and rejoice in your love and your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and respond with a song. What? Across the lens. Sorry. One, two, three, four, five.